Hey, it's Shane here. Throughout the majority of my career, I spent thousands of hours on my technique to try to be as close to perfect as I could be. But the one thing I didn't work on was my mental skills. On the exact mindset I needed every ball to be able to access all of my technical skills that I worked so hard to develop. Well, I've recently released my book, Winning the Inner Battle, which has all of the information that you will ever need to deeply understand how you can create the correct mindset for you so that you can bring the best version of yourself every time you step out into the middle. Go to shamewatson.au to purchase a copy of Winning the Inner Battle now. It is available in paperback, ebook, or audiobook versions. Well, it's now time for your episode of Lessons Learned with the Greats. Enjoy. I was always a very insecure person. I think it went right back to those young junior days when I was so little, so small, had no power, had no shots. I never thought I was as good as the other guys. I had to work twice as hard just to be able to compete with these players. And so I had so many doubts and so much self-doubt that I had to work extremely hard on the mental side of the game. Um, and, And personally, I think it's... I heard Dennis Lilly say when I was a kid growing up that cricket is 90% mental, 10% skill. I didn't believe him at the time, but now I actually probably do believe it. And particularly as you go up, up the levels, um, the higher you go, it is all, all in the mind. Today on this episode of Lessons Learned with the Greats, I have the privilege of talking to and gaining incredible insights from the Mr. Cricket himself. I've been so fortunate to have played so many of my games for Australia with this guy and shared so many special memories on and off the field. There is no doubt that this guy is one of the nicest people I've ever played with. With this though, you can never ever doubted his fierce determination and competitiveness that he had on the field. Mike Hussey, aka Mr. Cricket, thank you so much for taking the time to come on my show. G'day, Watto. It's a pleasure, and uh, thank you for that very fine in- introduction. I, I must agree with one of those things. Um, I was also very privileged to play with you for so many years and to share so many great memories. Uh, I don't know. It's great to reminisce, but, yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Get on your asses. All right. I'm just going to give a little bit of a background on um, what Huss achieved during his um, amazing career. He played 79 test matches, scoring... 6,235 runs at an average of 51.52, which is phenomenal, with 19 test hundreds. He played 185 one-day internationals, scoring 5,442 runs at an amazing average of 48.15 with a phenomenal strike rate of 87. He played 38 uh, T20 internationals, averaging 37.94 at a strike rate of 136. (laughs) Crazy, crazy numbers. Um, 20, 273 first-class matches, scoring nearly 23,000 runs at an average of 52.13 with 6,100s. He also played 161 domestic T20 games. Most of these games were with the mighty Sydney, Sydney Thunder and CSK, <laughs> where he scored 4,569 uh, 4, runs at an incredible average of 37.45. From an international cricket perspective, he was a little bit of a late bloomer in a way, starting as he was just hitting uh, his, his 30s. But wow, didn't he make a mark over the next eight years, being very heavily involved in the 2007 World Cup win and two championship champions trophies 
wins in 2006 and 2009, as well as so many more amazing victories for Australia. If you don't mind, Husses, I'm going to just give a couple of my, well, two of my favorite highlights of your career. Go for it. The first one is your 195 against England at the Gabba in 2010. <laughs> we were in some trouble when you came to the wicket <laughs> and you definitely, and you took charge from ball one. To be able to do this in an Ashes test, the first test of a series, and the backstory of you having a bit of a tough time in the lead up to that first test as well with a few people putting some heat on you in the media, um, it was incredibly special to be able to watch and be a part of. What do you remember of that time exactly, Huss? Well, yeah, it was a lot of emotions going through in my mind. Um, you're right. I guess the backstory is probably the big thing for me. Le- leading into that, uh, that series, the, the Ashes series, there was a lot of talk about my place in the team. I, you know, was obviously in my mid-30s. Um, we played two Sheffield Shield matches uh, leading into that uh, Ashes series and I got out against South Australia. I made zero and one. And then we're playing against Victoria in the next one at the MCG and I got duck in the first inning. So uh, you can imagine with an Australia A game going on at the same time down in Hobart, um, all the commentators were talking about how it's time for me to go. Um, it's uh, time to try Callum Ferguson, try, time to try Usman Kawaja and, and even um, Greg Chappell, who was in, uh, one of the national selectors at the time, he came up to me in Melbourne after that first innings and said, look, we really want to back you, but can you just score some bloody runs, please? You know, so I was under the pump coming into that second innings of that Shield game, and um, thankfully I managed to get some runs, and and the selectors showed that faith in me coming into that uh, into that sort of uh, first Ashes test. And the, the the weird thing was, I actually felt like I was batting well, but I was just finding ways to get out cheaply. And and it's amazing how those external distractions can get in your mind. Um, and there was one in particular. So Michael Slater was commentating uh, down in Hobart for the Australia A game. And, and he was the one that was quite vocal saying, it's time for me to go. It's time to bring in these other guys. And I remember every single time during that innings up at the Gabba, every time, every time I tapped my bat, I said, stuff you, Michael Slater. <laughs> so uh, I guess I don't like to normally listen to the outside uh, influences and externals, but it was hard to filter everything out going into that series. But that, that sort of um, doubt that others had out there, it sort of did motivate me. And then obviously, obviously you don't need much more motivation to play in an Ashes series as well. But it's also a bit uh, sliding doors moments as well, like that you talk about coming in in a bit of trouble in that innings. Um, I remember the very first ball that I faced where um, I went for a drive, a straight drive down the ground and I actually, I actually nicked it and it landed literally millimetres before second slip, um, uh, Graham Swan. So... I could have been on another day out for another duck. And uh, again, all the talk would have been about Hussey should be out of the team. But thankfully it went my way uh, and that very first ball and I was able to go on and, and get a good score. Um, so, yeah, it was, I don't know, ama- amazing time. Um, and I'm, uh, I guess, I can't say I enjoyed the lead up because <laughs> it was very stressful and I had doubts myself whether, mm. whether I could still do it. Um, but I was thankful that the selectors end up showing faith in me, and I was thankful in the end that I was able to come through that tough situation and uh, yeah, get Australia into a good position in that test. You certainly did, Huss. Thanks to you <laughs> and, and Hads. <laughs> yeah, okay. Brad Hadden batted beautifully too. Yeah. Um, my second highlight is your phenomenal 60 off 24 balls 
in the 2010 T20 World Cup semi-final against Pakistan. Under pressure to bat like that and to hold your nerve in that last over chasing, we needed 18 off the last off the last six balls against Said Ajmal, who was at the peak of peak of his powers, was phenomenal. How did you stay so calm during that, especially that last over, knowing that you needed like well three sixes or a lot of boundaries, at least four boundaries, to be able to get us to the win? Yeah, well, I guess I'll start by saying I hated facing Ajmal as well. <laughs> I had so much <laughs> trouble with him throughout my career in all forms of the game. He got me out so many times. But but if I go back. Probably when we, we there was three overs to go and we needed fifty odd um, to win, uh, and and I was in. I think Mitchell Johnson had just come in, and to be honest, I basically sort of almost gave up hope. I, I sort of said, "Well, it's going to be pretty tough from here. I, I'm not sure we can do it." So it actually it inadvertently just took a lot of pressure off me. I just thought, "Well, I'm just going to go for it, see how we go, and and if we get close, we get close. But if you know, it's probably unlikely from here." And, and it was amazing when you take your, your focus off the, the end result or losing or, you know, the pressure of the game or anything like that where you just just go out and what will be will be. Mm. It's amazing how things can start to go your way. And, and coming into that last over, I still didn't really believe because, as I said, I, I hated facing Ajmal. But there was just a couple of little things in our favour. One was that there was a short boundary on the, on the left-hander's leg side for that last over and a huge gale blowing that way as well. So... I thought to myself, well, if I could just get it up into the breeze, maybe maybe it'll carry over there, even though I'm hitting generally against the spin. But, um, yeah, uh, after the first couple, you sort of thought, wow. I, I still wasn't sure, but I started to believe, you know, with um, when we needed uh, just one run to go. That's the, that's the only time I actually started to think, shivers, we can actually win this game. And funny enough, that's when I started to feel the pressure come right back onto me, thinking, well, we should win from here. Mm. Uh, I've got to finish the job, you know, and... <laughs> And, and thankfully, that, that last ball did come out of the middle. But, um, yeah, it, it was a, a strange day. Just It doesn't happen very often in your career where the stars just seem to align and everything mm. just seems to click. But, but that just happened to be my day. Um, and, yeah, it's certainly something I'll certainly cherish forever. Yep, our day. Jeez, didn't we celebrate after that <laughs> as well? <laughs> okay. <laughs> now I've um, given you a couple of my highlights of your career. Is there one or two that really stand out for you? Uh not, not really from an individual perspective. I, mm. I think um, team perspective, you mentioned the 2007 World Cup. Mm. You know, that, that was a massive highlight for me. Mm. Uh, I, I didn't personally have a very good uh, tour myself, but, but from a team perspective, I don't, think, I don't think I've been part of too many teams that have executed and planned so mm. well in a particular tournament. Now, I, I know you were there as well. It was, it was just unbelievable. The preparation leading into games, the execution on the day, and also, we obviously had some great players, you know, guys like McGrath and Ponting and Gilchrist, but we also had some fantastic unsung heroes as well, you know, guys like Nathan Bracken and, and Brad Hogg, you know, did amazing jobs throughout that tournament as well. So uh, I, to be part of that and to be part of a team that is considered best in the world uh, and world champions was uh, was pretty special, I think. Um, so, so probably that, that, that World Cup campaign. And then... An Ashes series in uh, two thousand and six seven, where we won five nil in Australia. Uh, it was the swan song for McGrath, for Warney, for Justin Langer. Um, just to be actually on the same field as these guys, some of the greatest players that have ever played the game in, in history. Just to be, you know, on the field with them, watching how they go about their work. 
uh, it was just incredible. And, and that, that's, that's the sort of things that I, I really sort of cherish and, and remember. Okay. As we know, cricket is a skill-based game. So from a batting perspective, uh, was there one specific technical component that really stands out to you that once you developed, developed it and implemented it, that you were like, yeah, if I, if I do this and I bring this every time, I'm a great chance Well, I will be at my best consistently? Oh, well, from a technical perspective, um, there's probably, probably a couple of parts to this throughout the journey. I guess from, from a batting point of view, batting is a long journey. So there's so many lessons learnt, both technically but also mentally. I'm big on the mental side of the game as well. But from a technical perspective, as a kid growing up, I was a very little kid. I had no strength, no power, no shots. All my runs came from little deflections and, uh, and, and sort of worked outside edges and things like that. So one, one of my very first coaches spoke to me and said, just work on a really good uh, solid uh, technique, a basic technique, a good defence and a good technique. Because, yes, you don't have the power just now, but as you grow um, and the bowlers start getting better, and are able to move the ball, you'll be able to survive and hang in there and, and be able to get through the, these, um, these bowlers. Whereas there was a lot of other players that were a lot bigger, stronger, that could just smash the ball out of the park at that stage. Um, as they got older and the bowling got better, then maybe their techniques weren't good enough to, to be able to handle that sustained pressure. So it was great advice. And I just tried to work on basically getting a really good solid defence and, and basic technique. Uh, and so that was, that was really important um, in those formative years for me. Uh, I guess the the next sort of stage, um, I was very lucky when I was playing grade cricket to uh, have a a coach called Ian Kevin and he spent hours and hours and hours with me um, just and we did basic drills, um, pretty much underarm drills and it was just about grooving my, um, the plane of my swing. Um, So all my drives, it was about, you know, getting the right plane and uh, and, and the ball, the bat coming through the line of the ball and, and, and remaining through the line of the ball so, so well. So we must have done that for years. <laughs> and I think that was very important in the journey um, of just basically um, putting, you know, ingraining it in my computer up here. This, this, is, the, this is the correct technique again, um, you know, in those, again, in those sort of formative years as I was growing up. What, one technical change I did have to make um, and that, that was probably more of a personal thing is I've got quite long legs. So um, we were always taught to be brought up to, to have the bat on the ground. But because the bat's on, on the ground, my head would quite often sort of fall over to the leg side quite a bit. Um, and I'd have a lot of trouble with the ball that swung back in. Uh, I'd get LBW a lot. I missed a lot of runs off my pads. So uh, I, I tried and uh, tried out the idea of maybe standing up. I'd seen a few players in England do it. And, and having my bat up off the ground. And it, it certainly was very beneficial for, for me personally. Um, I'm not saying that would work for everyone. And, and I certainly wouldn't try and coach everyone to do, do that either. You know, it's, it's a very personal thing because of my body stature. Um, but I found it really helped me a lot to be able to then play that ball that was swinging back in a lot better, um, but then also be able to access scoring on the leg side a lot more than, than what I had done previously. Brilliant. It's amazing how something... As simple as just not tapping your bat as the bowlers coming in can just open up so many different options. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I still had like a – I still believe there's like a little reactionary movement just yep. to sort of get you going. Like some, yep. some people like to do a, a prelim movement to get themselves going. Mine was actually with my hands um, and I, I didn't tap the bat down as such but I had like a little, 
a little sort of jump or trigger or something just to get myself going. It's not something that I thought about. It just yeah. sort of happened as a reactionary thing to, to almost click the, the body into gear. Yeah, absolutely. And with that sort of pre-movement, whether that's with your with your feet or with your hands, it's really starting to get that bat, your bat moving, isn't it? So your bat seems lighter because if it's just if your bat's stationary, then it feels a lot heavier. Whereas if you just start moving your bat a little bit, then it becomes a lot lighter weight to be able to move and move fast <laughs> when you need to. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And 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 that sometimes that's difficult because as a batsman. You don't want to be thinking about what your feet are doing or what your bat's doing as the bowler lets go of the ball. You want to be just clear-minded and just seeing that ball out of the hand. So um, generally those things are just a, a natural reactionary sort of movement but that, you know, you develop over time. And so it's, it's a hard thing to copy your favourite player. Like I, I don't want to copy Matthew Hayden or, or Ricky Ponting or, or something like that because what they do works for them but not necessarily work for me. Um, Hus, from a fielding perspective, you were a great all-round fielder and catcher. So was there one technical component in particular with your catching that you worked really hard to develop or were you always just a really natural like natural catcher and you just grooved your muscle memory and you knew that was, that was going to work really well? Well, I don't think I was necessarily natural, but, but I did enjoy fielding. Uh, one of my, again, my, my formative coaches said to me, you might as well enjoy fielding because you're actually going to spend more time in the field than you are batting and bowling. So you, you, you bet, better enjoy it and become, become as good as you can at it. So I guess if I think back to um, in the backyard with my brother Dave or we'd, we'd live close to the beach, so we'd always be down the beach and um, we'd be throwing to each other all the time, taking catches, skimming the ball off the water at the beach and, and trying to take diving catches and things like that, throwing high balls to each other. So, so we did a lot of that as kids. And and I think that probably helped as well, just just catching pretty much every day, different types of catches, diving, high balls, the, the whole lot. That once I got to start playing more organised cricket, I I was already a decent catcher, um, and um, and I really enjoyed the fielding side of things. And and the other part that I really enjoyed was being out there on the field with ten other guys. You know, there's there's always plenty of banter and chatter and 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 things like that. But it was just. No one could touch you out there in the middle. Um, it was just you and your mates out there playing playing cricket. So I actually really enjoyed the fielding side of things. From a technical perspective with catching, um, I I was always someone that caught the high ball with the fingers up. And there was lots of arguments. Is that the right way or is it is it better to have your hands down, down this way? And personally, I don't think there's a right or a wrong. Uh, well, I think there's a wrong if you try and catch like a crocodile or something <laughs> yeah. like that. That's wrong. Yeah. But as far as hands this way or hands that way, it's whatever you feel most comfortable with. And I felt comfortable catching with the fingers up because I could get the ball right behind my eyes and, and really watch the ball right into the hands. So mm-hmm. that's what worked for me. Other guys, completely different. From a throwing perspective, I never probably had a, the strongest arm going around. But we had a uh, fielding coach with the Australian team in Mike Young, former baseballer, and he really was probably the first guy that really taught me the mechanics of throwing that I could understand. You know, we'd had baseball coaches in the past, but um, Mike, Mike Young, the way he explained throwing and getting your accuracy and how to throw off balance and things like that, he was an amazing coach and, and I, really, I really enjoyed the way he sort of articulated his coaching as well. Sure. Reach out every time you threw it. That's what you said. <laughs> Even in- <laughs> and the crazy thing is whenever I'm coaching like under 15 kids or under 14 kids um, with my son's team, 
I'm talking about exactly the yeah. same things that Mike Young taught me. You know? Get their yeah. shoulder up and then reach. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Yeah. Um, Huss, you're always super fit. Um, so did you always manage your body really well or did you have some setbacks uh, along the way that you had to learn from that changed the way you trained a bit and prepared? No, I was very lucky again uh, with my upbringing. My, my father was an um, athletics man. He, he loved sprinting and, and he was uh, very good. He had a great understanding about the body and, and athletic ability. Um, he didn't have much understanding about cricket whatsoever. So, so his theory was I can prepare you in the off-season, get you very fit and get you strong for what you need for cricket, but then I've got to hand you over to the coaches. Like I, I, don't, I can't help you with your batting or your bowling or anything like that. So he was instrumental in, in our, my, both my brother and I's formative years in, in getting us uh, really fit. So basically a typical pre-season for us would have been we'd start off, we, as I said, we live close to the beach. So we'd start off with a good 5K run along the beach and we'd do that for about a month, a couple of times a week. And he'd say, just go and enjoy it. It doesn't have to be fast. Just get the kilometres in the legs. And then we had a 10-week program after that where we were on the sand hill. And uh, we had this huge sand hill at the end of the beach that we, that we lived close to. And it was tough. It was a really tough graft going up and down this sand hill. And um, it started off, you had to do it three times. The following week, it was four. Then it was five. And we worked up to, to 10 times up this sand hill. And it was uh, really tough going. But then after that, we had about a four or five week program where he got us onto the track and we'd start with 800s, bring it down to 400s, 200s, 100s. And then leading into the season, we're doing short, sharp, fast sort of sprinting efforts. And, uh, and the other side of it was the strength side. And my father was never one on doing big heavy weights. He thought it wasn't beneficial for cricket. Uh, cricket was a game particularly batting about being able to accelerate the bat he used to call it the implement, accelerate the implement. So we did a lot of light weights um, but fast repetitions, you know, and, and it was just about trying to get uh, lean, fast and fit. And then coming into the seasons, honestly, we, we were fit and raring to go. And, and it was just um, that, that sort of physical preparation as a young person, I think we just built up such a great base early in our careers that that, that really helped us throughout the latter part of our careers as well. So I was very lucky. I, I didn't suffer from too many injuries whatsoever. I had a couple of hamstring um, issues later on in my career. But the good thing was because I'd built up such a great base as a young player, um, it didn't take me long to get my fitness level back up to, to the, the, the level it was needed. So I was, I, I'm very indebted to my father, really. He was, yeah. he was brilliant in that sort of regard. What an amazing resource to be able to have um, to guide you um, in that throughout, especially in formative years, to build that foundation such a strong foundation too wow yeah yeah no no you're right that found and that's what i think is so important that foundation is so important from a physical sense but then also your technical sense and that's where i was very lucky as well having coaches you know impressing on me the importance of having a good technique and getting the basics right from a young age um Hus, you captained a lot of games throughout your career and had had some great success with the sydney thunder um as well so from a leadership perspective was there one time that didn't go to plan that you were like, okay, if this situation arises again, you know, I'm going to go in a different direction. Cause that last, that first one that I tried that direction didn't really work out how I wanted it to at all. Oh, uh, probably many, many situations. <laughs> um, I've actually captained Australia four times as well, Watto. And uh, no, I've lost you. every one of those games. I didn't, and I didn't help <laughs> you cause their house. Sorry, mate. 
<laughs> bone um, just bone jack. I, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, it, it's um, I think I don't know. Leadership's a really difficult one, and it's it's different for every situation. And, and that's that's one thing I love about captaincy, though, is that there can be a hundred different ways to do it, and you can get all the different advice you like. Um, but at the end of the day, you as captain have to make that final call. And, and maybe that's something that I battled with a little bit as a younger captain. Um, as I got older and more experienced and I felt more confident in my leadership, then I, I would definitely still ask, you know, what, what others thought, but I had more confidence in making that, that sort of hard call. This is, what, this is the way I want to take it. As a younger captain, I found that more difficult. I, I thought, okay, well, what's this guy think? What's this guy think? Oh, I don't really know. I'll just do that, you know. And, and I didn't own it and take accountability as much as maybe what I should as a leader. So I wish in hindsight I was a more confident and decisive leader um, in my younger younger sort of times as, as a captain. Um, but having said that, it's, it's part of human nature, I guess, and, and certainly my personality. I, I, I wasn't... I wasn't the strongest character probably at that, you know, in those early stages as well. So uh, great learning experiences um, and, and it certainly, again, it helped me once I became, you know, a leader later on in my career. It's amazing advice there because what you said there is exactly my experience as, as I captained as well. When I first started, I was getting so much information from outside and allowing that to then I'd just use that on the field. And didn't trust what I was actually feeling at really at that time to go, you know what, this is through my experiences, this is what I feel is the right thing right now. I was being heavily influenced from statisticians and analysts and things like that. Instead of just trusting what my gut was saying, it's not until you get to a stage where you are more confident to go, you know what, no, this is, I'll get all this information, but then I'm just going to trust what I, what I feel because of trying to make the best decision I possibly can. Yeah, and one of the best that I've seen is probably MS Dhoni in that mm. respect. In <laughs> You know, you'll be watching from the outside and you think, what is he doing? Like, where is he going with this decision? But he, he is someone that just stays really calm, trusts his gut and, and goes with his instincts. And it's amazing how often you get it right, yeah. you know, particularly if you've played a lot of cricket and you understand the game and you can read the game quite well. It's amazing how it can go your way if, if you just trust it. You know, you, we same with batting. You get so distracted by all the external stuff going on around rather than just focusing what's important right now. Yeah, exactly. And that's what you, with MS, he's got such, he trusts his gut feel and what, what mm. gut feel is, is that's tapping into your unconscious mind to be able to pull out all that amazing resource that you've got. So that's yeah, what, exactly. You wish, I wish I could have tapped into that <laughs> a little bit earlier. <laughs> so do uh, I, don't worry. <laughs> um, you've, I know you've had a lot of different experiences as well as a coach now um, with, you know, with being involved with some of the best teams in the world. So from a coaching perspective, was there one like situation that really stands out for you that you really learned from? <laughs> and if a situation like that arises again, you would just, you'd, you'd approach it differently because of your initial experience? Most definitely. Um, there's been there's been two that probably stand out most, and one actually involves you, Watto. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I, I don't. I, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. I, and you know, um, I, I guess I was watching you bat in the last IPL, and it was a tough pitch at Chennai, and you know, everyone was battling. The scores were low, but I was seeing something that was different in your game. I didn't know exactly what it was, but it looked different from the year before. Now I. In my mind, I was thinking, okay, you've got to take into consideration the conditions here. 
But it wasn't just at Chennai that I was seeing something different. It was also when we played away. So I decided to go away with our analyst and just get as much footage as I could on your batting from the previous year. And then I watched as much footage as I could on what you were batting this year. And just, just to see if I could see anything different. Now, I wasn't sure if there was anything, but I just wanted to see. And I did notice something. And, I, and I, so what I did, I, I asked the analyst, I said, look, can you get just, just clip it all up so get about 10 balls of what it was like last year and get about 10 balls of what it looks like this year. And I, was, I, I, I don't know if you, you probably remember it, we were at Colcutta for do. training and I came to you and I said, what, I just, just want you to have a look at something, tell me what, tell me what you see. And it didn't go down well. <laughs> and and, and um, I was like... Okay, no worries. Well, if it's nothing, and, and so I sort of, uh, you said, mate, this has got nothing to do with my technique. It's about my intent. And I was like, right, okay, you, you know your game. So, uh, so, so it was about like, okay, if it's about your intent, that's great. No worries, um, nothing. And, and I thought, I went back home afterwards and I thought, how could I have done that differently? Um, like it didn't, that didn't play out how I thought it was going to play out. And I, I thought to myself, I, I think a big part of coaching is about um, knowing the different personalities in your team. And that's something that I've still got a long way to go in, in from a coaching perspective is understanding the different personalities and then communicating with them almost according to their personality. So, so you, for example, you, you, you're, a, you're a strong personality. And for me, just coming to you and saying, what, oh, yeah. what, what, you know, I'm seeing something here, what's going on? Like automatically you're going to sort of go, well, hang on a second, mate. You know, no, no, this is, this is not right. Mm. So in hindsight, if I had my time again, I think I would have just tried to start a conversation with you um, slowly and just sort of say, what I, I'm not, I'm seeing something different. I don't know what it is. Can you help me? And, and trying to make it your, yeah. your coming up with it rather than me coming to you and saying, what I, this is not working, you know, you're not doing this, you're not doing this. Mm. I wanted to draw, I, I think if I had my time again, I'd try and draw it from you, make it your idea. Yep. You, you know what I mean? No, I certainly rather do. Rather than me confronting you, um, mm. um, mate, mate, start the conversation to say, okay, come on, tell me, is it something technical? Is it, is it in here? Is it, you yeah. know, I, I don't know what it is. I'm seeing something. Can we go and look at some footage together and, and try and, you know, maybe figure this out, you know, and, yeah. and try and get you to sort of come up with the answers rather than me trying to impress them on you. Yeah, it's, it, it's interesting because I remember, I suppose, it, I just got my back up straight away and, and, and it's not because of um, exactly how you approached it. It's more so, you know, other things that I was trying to deal with as well, like not mm. scoring runs, knowing that, you know, I'm, I'm right at the latter part of my career. I want to, I do want to do really well. I want to play for a little bit longer as well as just, I had a, um, you know, one of the best tournaments I had previously in the PSL as well. So I knew I was batting well. Um, but then yeah. I just got a bit, I got rattled um, with, you know, especially the Chennai pitch. But um, from my, yeah, from my experience with that, what you said there is um, just been able to, I suppose, not allow the shutters to come up. And that's what, because of just, I suppose, my personality, how I'm built and said, and especially when, when I'm under the gun, the shutters can go up pretty quick. <laughs> um, no, but, but, that, but that's a good point that you make. And that, that shows a bit of inexperience as a coach. I didn't really think about, okay, obviously I didn't, I didn't factor in that all this other stuff might have been going in your head as well, thinking, yeah, I'm at the end of my career, I'm, I wanna, I wanna, I'm not scoring runs, what's going to happen? So I didn't really consider that. I was just thinking, no, no, I'm seeing something different, uh, let's try and work it out. But 
that's where I need to maybe show a bit more empathy and sort of come in a bit softer. And uh, so, so it was a great learning experience for me as a coach yeah. anyway. You're welcome. Can I tell, can I tell, I'll tell the other one as well. Please. Which um, the other one was with MS. Yes, please tell and this one so everyone can hear this. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it, it's, it's hilarious, really. Yep, yep. still is. So, so our analyst again, the night before a qualifying final against the Sunrisers Hyderabad, um, the night before, he, he sends to me this split screen of Rashid Khan. Now, when he runs into bowl and he got his leg spinner, he holds his fingers like wide as he's running in. Um, and when he bowls, he's wrong and he runs in with his fingers like this. And I thought, whoa, this is good, but I'm not sure. <laughs> I really want to be throwing this out to the batsman the night before this massive qualifying final. So... I'm sitting on this info and I'm going back and forth. Should I? Shouldn't I? Would I want it? Uh, and, I, and I thought to myself, if we play this game tomorrow and we lose and Rashid Khan goes really well and I've sat on this information and I haven't sent it out, I'm not going to forgive myself. So I decided to send it out to all the batsmen. And, but I did make sure I write, wrote that, look, nice disclaimer you may there. want to use this. <laughs> you may want to use this. You may not. Just... It's just here for your information. If you want to, then go for it. If not, and some of the guys loved it. Like, so, so Faf, for example, he loves that sort of stuff. He wants to know how many slower balls Bhuvneshwar Kumar is going to bowl in the first six overs. He wants to know all the different grips and everything. But there's other players that probably don't want to use it. And uh, anyway, I, I sent it out to all the batsmen. MS, you didn't really hear a reply, which is generally normal. <laughs> but we come to the game and we're playing the game and we're in. Big trouble. MS is in the middle. So while he's in the middle, you still think, no, we're, we're, we're a chance. We're still a chance to win this game. Rashid Khan comes on to bowl. One of the very first balls he faces goes for the big cover drive. Rongan bowled through the gate. And I'm thinking, oh, gosh, okay, no worries. Well, MS walks straight off the field and I'm sitting in the dugout and he walks straight up to me and says, I'll bat my own way, thanks, and sits back down. <laughs> As a coach, I still remember it like it was yesterday, that look on your face was like you'd seen a ghost. <laughs> I didn't know what do you say. <laughs> oh, I thought my days as a coach are over, you know, over forever. Um, but, but, but to MS's credit, after the game, he was absolutely fantastic. He, he came up and he spoke to me and we had a good chat about it and he said what, what you, what, the information was correct, but for him, he needed time to go away and process it and practice it. So what he did in the game was he thought he saw it was going to be a leg spinner, played the shot. He didn't even bother watching the ball. Mm. And obviously he was uh, done through the gate with the wrong end. He said, but if I had time to go into the nets, have a look at the hand as they're running into bowl, then still watch the ball, then I would have had time mm. to sort of build it into my routine and yeah. it, would have, it would have been very beneficial. So, again, great, great feedback from the player, mm. um, you know, and, and I can sort of learn from that as a coach as well. Yeah. Good on your house. So great stories. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, from a from a mental skills point of view, were you yep. always built a certain way or did you have to develop certain mental skills that you used to give yourself the best chance of being at your best? Uh, without doubt, it's something I had to develop. Um, and, and again, I was very lucky in my formative years in Western Australia that we had a sports psychologist from basically under 15s all the way through to the Sheffield Shield team, a guy called Sandy Gordon. Uh, he, he was... 
instrumental in, in, in those younger years just educating us. Now, there were some pretty boring sessions, I must admit, sitting in lecture theatres and going through topics like goal setting and concentration, visualisation, routines. Um, but, but again, that, that foundation that, that was built in those young years held me in great stead for the, for the latter part of my career. Um, I, I was always a very insecure person. I think it went right back to those young junior days when I was so little, so small, had no power, had no shots. I never thought I was as good as the other guys. I had to work twice as hard just to be able to compete with these players. And so I had so many doubts and so much self-doubt that I had to work extremely hard on the mental side of the game. Um, and, and personally, I think it's... I heard Dennis Lilly say when I was a kid growing up that cricket is 90% mental, 10% skill. I didn't believe him at the time, but now I actually probably do believe it. And, and particularly as you go up, up the levels, um, the higher you go, it is all, all in the mind. And, and I, I was very grateful that uh, I was able to learn those skills from a, from a younger age. As I said, goal setting, concentration, visualisation and routines. Um, still, batting is a long journey. So I was certainly no master of those at all by the time I was playing first-class cricket. And even midway through my first-class career, I was still certainly not a master of those skills. By the time I got picked for Australia and I was 30 years of age, I had a much better understanding of my game from a technical sense, but I also had a very good understanding of, of, of my game from a mental sense and what I needed to do to mentally prepare and what I needed to do um, to, to give myself a chance of performing out in the middle as well. And the, the big one for me was developing a routine. <laughs> and, and this took me, I think it took me over five years to develop my routine. Um, and so I'll tell you the process that I went through. I, if, if I had a, a brilliant innings where I just, everything just felt in the groove, I felt in the zone, I, I just, I don't know, batting felt easy. After that innings, I just got a blank piece of paper and I literally just uh, did a brainstorm. I, I literally just threw down anything I could think of on that piece of paper. So in the week leading up to the game, how did I train? What sort of training did I do? What did I eat? How much was I sleeping? Um, how did I feel? Uh, how did I sleep the night before the game? How, how did I feel in the morning of the match? What did I do in the warm-up? Um, what, did I, what was I thinking when I walked out to bat while I was batting? What was I switching on, switching off? How was I, was I tense? Was I relaxed? What was I thinking about? Any, anything and everything I could possibly think of, just sprayed it down on this piece of paper. I put that piece of paper in a drawer. Now, maybe two months, six months, maybe a year later, if I had another experience where I batted like a, a champion, um, everything felt great, I'd do exactly the same process, just spray everything down on this piece of paper, put it in the drawer, and I did this five times. And then at the end of five times, I got out the five pieces of paper and you could see a, a, a general trend of what was happening in the lead-up to matches, how I was feeling, what I did in warm-up, but then more specifically what I was doing in between deliveries as well. Uh, and so that helped me develop my routine. Now, again, this works for me. <laughs> I, I, I need to impress that what, what I did won't necessarily work for you or any other player out there around the world. But it was a great process to go through because it gave me a great understanding about what my best game looked and felt like. And so I knew that if I could just stick to these, these key things, whether the results were good or not so good, I knew they've worked for me in the past 
and I knew if I stuck to them, I'd be okay. And, uh, and so that helped me develop a very, very, uh, uh, not, not rigid, not strict, but a very sort of good routine that I, that I could stick to. And, and that was invaluable. And that's when I keep coming back to batting is such a long journey. You don't get to be close to your best until you're, you know, probably 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, 33, because you've had this opportunity to learn about your game and learn about yourself and learn about what your best looks and feels like. It's phenomenal, Huss. Thanks for telling me that when you're doing it. Oh, <laughs> it wasn't until after I finished <laughs> test cricket where I started to do that. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> um, okay, one question with this is were you, were you doing this in your early to mid-20s of what your best version of yourself was even at that moment of a moment in time? No, de- definitely not. Um, I, I had a basic understanding of, of those mental skills and, and I was trying to work on those. Um, but, but definitely not. I, I guess coming in, I, I was very set on how I wanted to play. My game was based around um, patience and discipline, um, letting a lot of balls go, dropping and running, running hard between the wickets, batting lots of time. That, that was the way my, my game was. Um, and that's, that's how I played pretty much throughout my whole life, being that young little, little kid. Um, so I was very one-dimensional in that respect. I was desperate to try and get into that Australian team and I, I looked at the Australian team of that time and there was guys like uh, Matthew Hayden, uh, Ricky Ponting, um, uh, Adam Gilchrist, even Justin Langer turned himself from a, a bit of a dogged player into more of an attacking player and I thought that's what the national selectors want. They want attacking players. So I decided to change my game and try and be more attacking and more aggressive and put the pressure on the bowlers and play more shots. And... To be honest, it had a detrimental effect to my, my game. I, I became very inconsistent. Um, I, I ended up actually getting dropped from the WA team because I, I was just so, so inconsistent with my form. And it really made me sort of take hold and sort of think, okay, well, how do you play best? You know? And I, I almost sort of thought, well, I'm not going to play for Australia now because I can't get picked for WA. So I'm just going to go back to enjoying my game taking some pressure off myself, go back to playing my way um, and, and just enjoying, enjoying playing the game again, you know, knowing that I could still be proud of my career if I played 10 years for Western Australia. And it was amazing as soon as I went back to playing my way and, and focusing on what my best looks like and having more self-awareness uh, rather than trying to be like someone else, and that's when my consistency returned. And And... and as far as, I, I didn't go back to being a boring, dogged player again, but you, you sort of slowly develop more shots over time, um, particularly with more one-day cricket and things like that. So I think I was naturally developing, a, you know, better stroke play as well. Yes, they are phenomenal insights, mate. They really, they really are. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like to be able to articulate it like you are um, so people really understand that you've, just, you've got to work out what the best version of you is at that moment in time, whether you're at the, the early part of your career, whether it's through the middle part, whether you're in your teenage years, it's just understanding what the best version of you is, not the best version of someone else. Talking about mental skills and performance, did the media, media scrutiny that was always around when we were playing for Australia ever affect your on-field performances? And what techniques did you use to deal with this? Well, again, my father was quite instrumental in, in this respect. So, so he, he impressed on me from a young age. <laughs> he was actually quite funny. Um, 
when I first started playing for Western Australia, it, it, the crowds weren't that big. And, and But he, I remember him sitting me down and saying, uh, now, listen, son, we're really proud of you, you know, playing for Western Australia. Can't believe it, you know. But what you must remember is you never, ever read the newspaper, all right? That, that, that's, that's really important. <clears throat> Whether you're going well or you're not going well, you, you shouldn't, shouldn't take all that in because, you know, if you, if you, when you're going well, you read the newspaper, you'll think you're, you know, better than what you are and, and, you know, the cricket will bring you back down to earth. If, you know, if you're not going very well, you can just get dug into a deeper hole and it's hard to get out of. So he goes, you're better off just not taking any notice of the media whatsoever. And I thought, oh, yeah, okay, no worries, Dad, you know, not thinking too much of it at the time. But it wasn't until I started playing for Australia that that advice really started to hit home. Um, you know, understanding that there's guys out there in the media just trying to do their job, trying to sell newspapers and they're, they're looking to sensationalise things that, you know, it's, it's just not helpful. You know in yourself if you're going well or you're not going well. Mm-hmm. And it, it is very difficult to filter everything out. Um, you know, I, I'd be the first to admit, I, I tried not to read or watch anything, but I'd be lying if I didn't hear certain things. Yeah. And, and certainly my family members, they, they would hear things and... I felt probably worse for them um, uh, because that, they, they sort of felt it probably, you know, more, more than what I did. But um, I, I did try and just divorce myself from the media at all, all times. Obviously, I had media obligations to talk to them. Um, but as far as reading stuff and taking stuff in, I, I, I just tried not to take any notice at all. Um, having said that, you know, the, the Michael Slater example where I did hear him, you know, basically say I shouldn't be in the team, that that did motivate me as well. I wanted to prove him wrong. Um, and, and that was just the way I went about it. There was other guys um, that, that liked to read everything. I, I know Steve Smith likes to read everything. I know Michael Clark, he used to like to read everything um, and, and probably use it as motivation. So everyone's a bit different in, in the way they go about it. It's probably more challenging now with social media as well. But, but for me personally, it was great advice from my dad at the start is you, you, don't, you don't need to read that stuff, mate. It, it, it's, it's not important. You know, what's important is how how you're feeling and how you're batting and how you're going about your game. Absolutely. That's exactly the technique that I use. It like in the end was just not reading anything because you said like, if you're, when you're doing well, people, they'll build you up like you're Superman, but then so <laughs> build you up bigger than what you, you know, what the reality is. And then the flip side yeah. of that, if you're not doing well, it's like you're the worst person in the world. And it's a personal attack on you. <laughs> Why aren't you scoring runs? You should be, you've let the whole like country down. And it, it digs you yeah. into a deeper hole than, you know, the actual reality of it is. So, um, totally. but that's great. And again, amazing advice from you, from your dad. God, this, the sage of the hussy household. Wowee. It's amazing <laughs> from a young age to have those, you know, super strong foundations. Yeah. Mm. You know, we were very lucky, very lucky indeed. Okay. This is going to dig in a little bit deeper into a different aspect of life um, away from cricket. And this topic is something that most people don't really like talking about or don't talk about that much. So with the financial lessons that you've learned over your life, looking back at sort of where you are now, would you have done things differently from an investment and wealth generation perspective? And this is nothing to do with how much money you earned or anything like that whatsoever. It's just about your wealth generation and whether you were wise from a fairly young age to be able to capitalize on, on wealth generation, markets, um, property, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I guess the way I sort of always looked at it, I've always been a quite a conservative sort of person, so no uh, adverse to risk. <laughs> uh, and, and I guess that's in my nature, I guess. I, I guess the way I look at it is that 
I've spent so much time playing cricket and becoming, let's say, an expert at cricket. Um, so when it comes to wealth generation, shares, property, I would definitely not say I'm an expert in any of those areas. Now, I, I would like to learn about it and talk about it and, and, um, and, and sort of get different ideas from different people. But my philosophy was, well, if I want help in that area or I want, um, I would go to the expert and, and get, get, their, get them to sort of manage things for me. So I guess what, what I decided to do was I, fa- I found a very good financial planner, um, sat down with him and, and I just said, right, this is our situation at the moment. Um, this is what it might look like in the future. It could go any other different way. I don't, I don't know, but can you build a plan for us? And, and then used his expertise to sort of say, okay, well, I think we should put some money in managed funds and I think we can grow it in this way. Um, I think we should, you know, you could diversify with some property here as well and then put some money into there. And then as the situation sort of evolves with your life, then you sort of keep reassessing it along the way. So like, like if I was sort of struggling with my batting, I would go to a, an expert coach. I wouldn't go to a banker to help me with my batting. Same from a financial perspective. I prefer to go to an expert to get their sort of advice and, and guidance and, and counsel on, on which direction to go. And, and that was very helpful. And we built a, a long-term plan. And in that plan, if, if I can give you one example, was um, when my wife and I started to have children. And I was, I was obviously never going to play cricket forever. But while our earning power was okay, we decided to set up an education fund to pay. We wanted to send our children to nice schools. Um, we saw education as an important part of, of their sort of development. So we, we uh, organised a separate investment uh, in, in managed funds to hopefully grow over the five, ten years that whenever school fees came up, we could just quickly withdraw from there and um, pay the school fees without having that sort of pressure when I'd finished playing cricket to have to keep finding money or keep working for to, to pay the school fees and, and things like that, just to take some pressure off later down the track. And it was fabulous, you know, and it, it's amazing how that just grew. And so to be able to have an expert there to talk to, to guide you and to counsel you on these sorts of things was just absolutely invaluable. And, um, yeah, we, we were very conservative. We, we didn't want to risk too much. My goal also was to, when I finished playing cricket, um, not to have pressure on me. So... I wanted to be able to just relax and then just do what I wanted to do after that. Um, so I decided I wanted to have no debt uh, at all when I finished playing cricket and I wanted to have the school fees and things like that all sort of sorted out. So basically whatever I wanted to live off, I could just I could do bits and pieces and, and just do what I wanted to do rather than feel like I had to be out there working and earning to pay off a mortgage, to pay school fees, to pay for bills and things like that. That's awesome, Huss. Um, in regards to the expert was he the first financial advisor that you'd actually work with or met with? Because one of the big challenges for everyone is trying to find the expert that has got your best interests at heart, not just their own and the kickbacks that they can get from what they just like push you into. It's a good question. Uh, very good question. I guess, yeah, you need a bit of trust. And, and I guess answering your question, no, it wasn't the first one, but we did have one before that. And, um, it didn't. It didn't go very well. Um, it, it was a bad situation. It turned bad, and um, it, no, 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 no hard feelings. But it enabled us to move move on somewhere else. I don't actually remember how we were recommended this. The guy that we still use now. We've had the same guy for 
I reckon over 15 years now. Oh, wow. yeah. um, you're, you're always nervous about, yeah, uh, you know, them sort of taking you for a ride. And, you know, again, I don't understand where all the fees and charges come from in, in a managed fund sort of system and how much they get. I have actually since asked him <laughs> and he has explained it to me very honestly. And, and look, I, I understand as well. He's trying to make a living to, to feed his family as well. Um, so I'm more than happy to, you know, share, share it around to, to make sure he can sort of feed his family as well. I guess it's, it's about people and, and developing those relationships with people. And, and we st- he's, he's just a down-to-earth guy. He explains things in layman's terms so I can understand and that was important. I didn't feel as though he was trying to pull the wool over my eyes with anything. Um, and so we developed trust in the relationship, you know, over, over a period of time, maybe six months to a year. And, and now I'd be more than happy to tell him all my bank details, be happy to tell him all my pins and everything and, and know that it, it you know, wouldn't, go, wouldn't go anywhere. That's what, that's what dreams are made of is to find someone like that where, yeah, and build that trust for sure. Um, Hus, life always throws challenges your way. Um, whether that's personally or family, family and family life as well. Um, so like, do you have a mantra or a saying in your life that makes you bounce back from these challenges that, that you face in life um, more quickly? Well, that's a good question. I probably don't have a mantra that I stick to, but I've certainly had some tough challenges um, throughout you know, my career, both, both on the field. Getting dropped from WA was was really, really tough um, because my ultimate dream was to play cricket for Australia. And when I got dropped from the WA team, that's, that was like a dagger in the heart. That, that, was just, that was basically ending my chance of playing for Australia and, and that really hurt. I think what was really important was that, that's when you find out about the people around you that, that you think are close to you. Um, are they your real friends uh, or are they just hanging on? Um, and I was very fortunate, I guess, as well. I, I had the support of my wife, Amy. Um, she, just having that confidant there to always have your back, to always try and pick you up when you are really down, that that was probably the real big thing that helped me. I, I don't think if I had that person there, I'm not sure how I would have gone. Um, I could have spiralled into a bad place. I, I, I don't know. Um, but just knowing I had one person there um, that still believed in me um, was was really important for me personally. And and similarly, when you talk about that um, that Ashes series, when um, I was coming in into that series under enormous pressure, I actually asked her during that last Shield game in Melbourne after I got a duck in the first innings. I said, "I'm not sure I can still do this. Do, do, what do you, do you think I can?" And if she had have said, "You know what? Well, it's not worth it," I might have ended it there and then but she was the one that said to me no you can you can still do this I, I know you can and just that glimmer of hope it it was it was something that I really needed so to have that person and it's not just her I have got a couple of other mentors I guess that um, I sort of stick close to and I really respect their um, their opinions and, and their views um, but but the support of I think your very close network um, I, th- I think is very important during those challenging times. And, and also I can sort of flip side that, say, with my wife. We, we went through some difficult situations with uh, uh, two births of, of our children that were extremely premature. Uh, so th- they were born at 28 weeks and the, the, it's, it's a horrible place to be. You know, you, you're fearful of your, 
your, your partner's uh, safety, the baby's safety. You don't know what's going to happen. And I think it was important for me then to really play that support role to Amy in that respect because she was in a place where it was really tough for her and a real big challenge for her to get through. So it sort of goes both ways, but it is nice to know you've got, you know, a couple of very good solid people around you just to support you in those tough times. Yeah. And that's the ultimate partnership, isn't it? To have someone or mm. some people with you to be able to help you when you like when times are tough and the other side yeah. is when other people's you know, mm. times are tough for them. And, and that's where I was very lucky again, like very lucky to have, have those people around. So not everyone's in that situation. And I, and I, I feel grateful that I've been, I've been lucky enough in that respect. Yeah, well, you, you give out to the world what you get. And if yeah. you you're put out into the world, great energy, it's going to, it's going to come back your way as well. So there's no, yeah. there's no surprises yeah. there, Huss, because that's the energy that you put out to the world. Yeah, well, and I guess the other part of it is you, you, can't, you can't do this life thing all on your own, <laughs> you know. Like it's, it's so hard uh, and there's so many tough challenges. If, if you think you can just do it all yourself, I, I think you've got some, you know, some tough times, you know, to go through and, yeah. and might take a lot longer to get out. So it's important to have those, you know, those people behind you. This is a final question, Huss, and I really sincerely do appreciate your time. Um, I really do. No um, I've enjoyed you, it. It's good. Great. <laughs> and everyone else, everyone else who listens to this will absolutely love it as well. Your insights uh, have been absolutely phenomenal, mate. Um, look, I know you love reading and learning as much as I do. So can you give me a couple of, of the best books that you've read that have had the most impact on your life? Yep. Uh, I, I, I love the Agassi book. Uh, it's called Open. Um, I thought that was just incredible the way that that was written. And I could empathise with, even though tennis and cricket are completely different sports and he's American, I'm Australian, I could empathise with some of the things he was going through as a professional sports person. The same doubts, the same fears, the same pain <laughs> at various <laughs> stages, um, the, the same, I guess, external distractions that can really affect you. Uh, I, I just loved, loved his book. Um, I thought that was excellent. And I've just finished one recently, which is a bit of an old book, um, uh, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Yes. You that one? Guess who put me onto that book? Who? Mike Young. He gave it, he gave it to really? me. I think it was, it was in South Africa. I think it might have been 2010 or something like that. Yeah, what a book by Dale uh, Carnegie. Carnegie, that's correct, yeah. Mm. And it was written back in, I think, the 20s or the 30s, yeah. might have been 1930s. Mm. And, and the, the principles that he talks about, I think still ring true today and certainly now that I'm an aspiring coach and I, and I spoke earlier about trying to understand people and their personalities and how to deal with people effectively, some of the techniques that he's used in that book or he talks about in that book are just invaluable. So it's my plan to read that book on a number of occasions to try and really embed some of those principles into my mind and, and how, to, how to talk to people effectively. Yeah, yeah his principles are timeless. There is no question. Yeah. 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 Awesome. I agree. Well, Huss, this has been really special to have had you on this episode of Lessons Learned with the Greats. You have achieved things that all cricketers only ever dreamed of. And with this, you've been able to do this and stay so true to yourself by being so incredibly kind and selfless. I just can't thank you enough for giving me the time to share all of your amazing insights with us. And we are all that much richer for digging into the mind of one of the greats of world cricket. Thank you. Uh, you're very kind, Wado. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure to chat to you. And uh, when are you going to interview yourself? Uh, never. 
maybe maybe one day I should interview you. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah. Sounds good. <laughs> For more episodes of Lessons Learned with the Greats, head to t20stars.com forward slash podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.